When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee. He entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now the Pharisees came up to him to test him. And they said, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And to send her away, and Jesus said, It was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Then the disciple said, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been, been born so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Amen. We're, uh, we're moving through uh, the fourth discourse of Jesus, as we've talked about. As we remember, the book is divided with an introductory section, um, the closing section during the Passion and and Jesus' final week and the crucifixion and the resurrection narrative. And then in between, we have these these five five narratives of Jesus going out and doing things, each narrative being followed by a time of teaching where Jesus uses what he's done, and then he begins to, to, to use his words to instruct us about what was actually happening in that section. We've seen that the opposition has been increasing against him, and it's kind of uh, the timeline is kind of pressing towards his arrival in Jerusalem and the trial and the crucifixion and everything. So he's, um, the opposition is getting heavier, and so he has been focusing his time more on the disciples because they are about to be left just them with the, the responsibility to then uh, display the kingdom of God to the world. And so the fourth discourse, Jesus has been addressing uh, the new community that he's creating. And we saw that a few weeks ago that when you bring a new community together, and there's been a thousands of years of history of this, it's not surprising, um, it doesn't always go well. And we bring people together to d- demonstrate and display the kingdom of God, to, to show what God is like, and it's hard. It's hard sometimes. And so we saw in chapter 18 that Jesus knows that they're going to come into each other like we all do today, and there's stuff inside of us that's not okay. Um, and, and Jesus wants to, to, to make us more like him. And so Jesus says, look at your own sin and take it seriously. He has very strong words about doing whatever you've got to do to address the sin that's in our own lives. And why do we do that? Because as men and women created in the image of God and, and, and redeemed by him, we, we're supposed to be pictures of Jesus in this world. We are the body of Christ. And we're supposed to put his kingdom on display. And so not dealing with my sin um, gives a bad picture of what the kingdom of God is about, doesn't it? And then he goes on, chapter 18, and he actually challenges them also to deal with each other's sins. 
So to actually step close enough into each other in community that we would actually discourse about and talk about and address the sin that we see in each other. And then he ended that section by um, this new community is, as they challenge each other, they're supposed to be characterized by an abundance amount of forgiveness. Because when we sin against each other, we need forgiveness, don't we? We need to receive it, and we need to give it. And the reason why, again, is why? Because the body of Christ, us as a church, are putting God's kingdom on display. And so it matters that what we show the world. And then we come here to chapter 19. Um, it tells us in those first verses that Jesus is moving into northern Judea. He's, he's been moving down from Galilee, heading directly towards Jerusalem. And so all this discourse about getting, getting them ready, getting them ready, is because it's coming to an end here. And it's expected uh, this opposition has followed him. And so Jesus is doing all this great ministry, and the Pharisees come along and pay no attention to that whatsoever. They have no intention of learning anything. They just come to test him, it says. They come with an agenda to either, in this particular case, to catch him on a legal matter, to discredit him, or perhaps to get him to press an issue that the people care about. And he's gonna, maybe he'll say something that will go, we're not going to follow this guy anymore, we don't like what he just said, and to maybe turn the crowds against him. And instead, Jesus uses this testing um, and has an agenda of his own. And he addresses this issue of divorce and marriage. What we're going to see is underneath that there's a much bigger issue having to do with what we're created for and what it looks like. But he uses this issue as a way to address life in a new community, which, by the way, as we've seen, is made up of individuals, it's made up of families, it's got children, it's got marriages, and all the stuff that comes with it. And it does not always go well. Because yet we're supposed to do what? Display the kingdom of God put it on display. And so how we walk through the, the difficulty of relations, particularly here, he's going to be talking about marriage, how we walk through that says something about the character and nature of God and the character and nature of the kingdom. So a couple comments before um, we take some time to pray and then step into this passage. Um, definitely not doing a full exposition on marriage and divorce. Um, we're, going to, we're going to stick with what Jesus says here in this section. Scriptures expound on much as other places. We're going to stick just with what he's saying here. Um, we're not going to address all different things that come up with the subject, but if, if um, those are issues for you or you're wrestling with those, um, please come and see me or talk to somebody here about them. But Jesus doesn't talk about what about abuse and addictions in the home. Uh, what about abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, which Paul addresses in his writings um, we're not going to address those things simply because Jesus doesn't hear in this particular place here. And he also doesn't address what happens when there's already been a divorce. There's already been this breaking, and perhaps it's, it's recent, and perhaps there's no chance for reconciliation. Perhaps it's long ago, and any of us have walked through that know that those, those hurts still remain there. What do you do with all of that? Um, he doesn't address that, but we can address it with each other as we step into each other's lives. Um, I would say, and then lastly here, um, although grace, um, God's goodness and his grace, we all know, doesn't erase the pain all the time, nor does it erase all the consequences that happen in our lives um, through our own fault or through the fault of somebody else. But um, you just got to look at the story of David, and you know that we have a redemptive resurrecting God. We have a God who's so intent about resurrecting dead things, even dead lives and hurts in our life. He just can't help himself. That's just what God does. 
And that's good news for us. Um, and lastly, I know this is a really hard subject, um, and it hits close to many of us. Um, I'm going to ask us to do this. If you have been touched by divorce in some, some close sphere in your life, it could be family, friends, somebody close, it could be directly, how many of would say you've been touched by this issue of divorce in your lives? Look at that. That's a lot of people. Me too. So, um, and I realize that there's, it's hard. Um, so what I'd like to do before we step into this, um, let's close our eyes and um, let's just bring whatever's there with you with that, whatever that stirs up in you. Bring it to God for a moment. Um, maybe you know somebody else you want to pray for. Maybe your own hurts, your own struggles. Just put them in God's hands as we get ready to step into his word. Lord, I'm thankful that you know each heart and you care about each of our hearts and you don't turn a, a blind eye to the things in our life. And so um, give us the, the, what you're trying to get through with this passage that we might uh, see what you're bringing forth, but also on this very issue that you would, you would bring your life and your voice um, your compassion, your mercy, and your healing in each of our lives. And so we ask that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the, the Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus here or turn the crowd against him. It's interesting. It's possible that, if you remember, John the Baptist spoke about the same issue. Um, remember, he challenged Herod about divorce, and it wound up putting him in prison. And he eventually got beheaded. It's, it's possible that the Pharisees are trying to get Herod stirred up about this, get Jesus talking about this, and perhaps turn Herod against him. Um, so they come to him with a question. And the question is, is it lawful, it's a legal issue here, to divorce one's wife for any cause, for any cause? Notice they don't say divorce one's husband, because they didn't, women didn't get to do that. Um, it, 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 the, the, what we see here today is going to apply to all of us, um, but here in this time, they, they didn't even consider that. There wasn't even consideration. And they're actually referencing back to Deuteronomy when Moses um, regulated divorce amongst their culture at the time. There's two schools of thought at the time of Jesus. The first one was the Shammai group. They were the conservative group. Um, and they would say if there's been sexual immorality by, um, they didn't usually address it with a husband, interestingly enough, um, with the wife, then the, the divorce, you were allowed to get a divorce. So, for instance, Joseph when he discovers that Mary is pregnant, is considering that she has been unfaithful during the betrothal period, and is considering divorce. And he would have had legal grounds, according to the Shammai group, to do that. The other group was the Hillel group at the time. And interesting that they were the dominant group. As a matter of fact, they were pervasive in Israel as being the, the primary voice of the time. And actually, what they held to had been going on since the time of Moses. Um, and they, their viewpoint, it gave men, again, not women, um, if, uh, if your wife displeased you in any way, you could divorce. So it, how long does those things last? I mean, we displease each other within a day of each other, right? So we all do that. Um, I don't like what she made for dinner or didn't, didn't write, didn't 
put her clothing together in the color pattern I like, whatever, you know? Um, it, it sounds silly, but actually there's examples that that's the kind of stuff. So really all it was was a, it became a means by which uh, uh, they're married, I just want to go on to somebody else. And so I'm just going to go on to somebody else. That's, that's it. It's just, a, it's just an open door to move, to, to move from wife to wife to wife, which is what they did. By the way, they, they wouldn't divorce the wife and then remain single. It just, that it wasn't, nobody did that in that culture. They would remarry. Unfortunately, as we'll see, the wife was left without any recourse to do anything. But that was the dominant thing. As a matter of fact, we think divorce impacts us so broadly today. It was, it was the norm in this culture at that time. Um, it just because it, it made it so easy to do, and people had embraced that. And so Jesus is going to give an answer, and he's going to take them beyond Moses and take them all the way back to the very beginning, which is the best place, because that's when God first created a community. He says, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what community looks like. So Jesus gives an answer. He says, have you not read, which is a little bit of a dig, because they should have read, that he who created them from the beginning, that's God himself speaking, made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. So what God, and Jesus adds this statement. It's not a Genesis. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So remember, in the beginning, God um, decides to create something that's, that's a picture of all that he is. And so he creates this, this world, and, he, and it flows out from his creative nature. And then he creates Adam and Eve in the garden, creates them specifically in his image, and he brings them together specifically to be a picture and a demonstration of the triune God. The, Paul talks about the, the marriage is supposed to reflect what God is like, give a, a, a on-earth picture. This is what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are like. This is what they look like. And he gives them these directives to do so. They're supposed to display his character in nature as um, Adam and Eve come together, bound together as one. The fact is, um, when sin entered the world, God did not change his plan. He, is, he, he wants to bring us back to that. that his, his driving force is to return us to that place again. And so he creates another community, us, um, the church, his body here, and he still intends for that same plan to be carried out. For our, our relationships, our marriages in particular, as he addresses them here, to display the character and nature of God and to show something about the kingdom of God to the world. And so it tells us here, he made them male and female. Uh, uh, Genesis makes it very clear. Even individually, they both, male and female, display the, the image of God. And then he says that they were to hold fast to his wife. The, the wording, the, the word that used to become one, um, I, I'm not even sure what the word is. The best uh, illustration of it is if anybody's ever taken wood glue and put two pieces of wood together. Like in sh- do, you guys, do you have shop class for people anymore? I had to take shop class. It was horrible. But anyways, it was a scary place. Um, but I remember you put the wood together and you glue it, and then you put the little clamps on there and let it tie. And you try to pull it apart, which I always made mistakes. I'm like trying to pull apart. You, you rip, the wood comes apart. The wood, the, wood, the, the wood pulls apart. And the idea here is that the, the hold fast, the clinging of a husband and wife together is that kind of bond. A bond by which if you pull it apart, it's impossible to do so without causing damage. It always, always causes damage because it's never what God originally desired and intended. 
And he says they become one. What's, what's that a picture of in the garden? It's the, the triune God who's one. Three persons become one. And so Adam and Eve are supposed to be a picture of that. And then Jesus makes this very clear statement and says, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what God is doing. Do not separate this. Because when you separate it, it gives a picture to the world of something different than the very heart and nature of God. Whenever I do marriages, one of the things I I've often say is, although we're right there and those two people are in front and everybody's focused on them and it's, and it's this great moment, um, my daughter and future son-in-law have a moment coming up like that pretty soon. Um, but I always say, you know what, this is about more than the two of you. It's always about more than these two people. Because this, this marriage, this bond, God said, it tells, tells the world something about the character and nature of God. So Jesus takes it seriously, because it's not just about two people, it's always about more than that. Displays the Trinity, the character and nature of God. It says something about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus raises the bar back up to what it was originally all about, which they had for thousands of years at this point, it completely cast aside. So the, as he says that, the Pharisees are going, well, Jesus has landed with this conservative group. Um, we're not liking that. So let's, let's, let's challenge him separately. Let's, let's pit him against Moses. If, you, know, you don't want to take on Moses. That's dangerous. So they ask another question. They say, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're basically saying, you're in conflict with Moses. You know, what are you doing with that? And they address Deuteronomy 24, and um, in that place, Moses says, when a husband um, sends his wife away in divorce, you had to give her this certificate, basically. Before then, they didn't have it. He just said, that's it, you're, we're done, and off she would go. But Moses regulated. So Jesus gives him an answer, interesting. He says it was because the hardness of heart, their hearts, that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And then he says again, but from the beginning... That's not how it was supposed to be. A couple things here. Number one, it says that Moses or even God himself permitted divorce, never commanded it here. Um, Secondly, what Moses actually does is he regulated divorce. Um, We all know Israel was a, they're obstinate and rebellious, and they were going to do whatever they wanted to do. And Moses looks out and he sees what's happening in their culture. It was just horrific what was happening and so it's not going to stop. So Moses attempts to regulate it. And then, it's, of course, it says he permitted it because of the hardness um, of their hearts. What was happening in the time of Moses, and it continued all the way to the time of Jesus, as I said, the husband could divorce the wife for any reason. But a divorced wife could not remarry. They weren't allowed to. Um, she was just kind of like technically like in no man's, whatever, no man's land, that's what it was. She's just cast aside with no recourse. And in the culture, the men would always remarry because that's usually why they did it in the first place. They wanted to marry somebody else. And so what would happen, and sometimes what would happen, the, the husband then would, um, would, would divorce the second wife, and then he would want to be, get married to the first one again because now she looked better or whatever was going on. And so they'd go back and forth. And what had happened here is the, the women that were divorced were left with no recourse for any financial help. They, 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 they couldn't marry anybody else. They were basically completely marginalized and cast as a complete form of abuse. And they suffered. They didn't have a, even a way of providing for themselves. 
And so Moses is looking at that going, this is this horrendous abuse going on here. There's these people suffering while these, these men are just doing what they want to do. So he steps in and he says, I'm going to create this, God hasn't created this law to regulate it, the certificate of divorce. And what the certificate did, it gave the wife a right to remarry in order to, to, to provide some protection, some, some way of dealing with the abuse that was going on. And Jesus addresses that in the very beginning. Moses was just trying to res- resolve a, a, a situation that was not going to end. And he says they're heart of heart. And Jesus, and it, it, it applies to the Pharisees here as well. And their hard hearts were hard on three levels, at least, as I think about it. One, they had a hard heart towards God. For they had taken God's, one of his greatest creations, they had distorted it, and they didn't care anymore about it. They were just looking for pursuing their, their own, ignoring God's purposes in it. They had a hardness of heart to their own sin. They wanted to do whatever they wanted to do and wanted no regulation over it. They just wanted to pursue their own passions and desires and were not recognizing the great sin in their own hearts. And lastly, they had, they had a hardness of heart towards their wives as their actions were, were, were leaving them in poverty and in, in a marginalized place without any recourse, and they didn't care. And Jesus addresses directly and says that their hearts are hard. God in the Old Testament never approves of divorce. As a matter of fact, it's, it's told that he hates it because it's the opposite of what he first created. But to minimize the damage that was being done by the sinful hearts of men, God enacts these, these regulations in order to, to try to stem this tide of injustice that was happening. Interesting that there's a number of Old Testament civil laws that were enacted because of sin and injustice were happening, and, and Moses knew they were going to keep going on because that's what people did. And he knew that abolishing the practices was not going to happen, and because of the hardness of their heart, God seeks to restrain them and, and minimize the damage to this injustice. So there are laws about divorce and polygamy and slavery um, and some other issues, and yet God was always, it's just traced all through scriptures opposed to all those things. So Jesus brings it back to the beginning. He says, from the beginning, that's not how it was. Which is the introduction to our new community. Here amongst us, that's not how it's supposed to be either. And then Jesus then, in in one statement, reaffirms that divorce is allowed, not required, um, in the case of sexual immorality. Interesting, in the Old Testament, when there was adultery, what was supposed to happen? They were supposed to be killed, is what was supposed to happen. It was stoning. Um, Interesting... um, so Jesus, at least this part, leaves one place, um, one place open. It's interesting that Jesus addresses the issue of sexual immorality. I can think of lots of reasons why marriages are damaged and hurt. That's not the only one. It's not good, but that's not the only thing. Um, and yet it's, the, it's in this sexual relationship in a marriage that is this picture of the unity of God. That's, that's what it's about. Um, so when we, we do premarital counseling, we often say the your, your sexual relationship, every time a husband and wife come together, they are reaffirming and redeclaring the covenant that they made together and made with God. And so Jesus looks at that particular issue. That is such does damage this issue of oneness that he addresses it. But even when that's happened, even and that's, uh, we've, had, we've had these discussions here at the Vineyard and with people have, um, there's been, one spouse has been unfaithful and their spouse deciding to leave, and we have supported that because this bond has been broken. And yet even in that, our conversation has always been, is there another step to take? Can we go a step further? 
Can we, can reconciliation still happen? Because why? God always does that, doesn't he? God is that kind of God that even when the things have been broken, he steps in and wants to bring life. And Jesus, I think, addresses this issue here and uses this little discussion as an opportunity because I think he wants to point us to God and his covenant with us. God who is always faithful to his covenant vows to us as people. And like I said, in the sexual immorality part, it's about breaking this one flesh vow. Um, when it's broken, it tells a lie to the world about the character and nature of God. When, when it happens and there's, there's immorality in, in the, the marriage, it's telling, and then there's a break, it's telling the world, that's what God is like. When, when we're unfaithful in our, as his bride, God's going to go off and do his thing. And the fact is that is not what God is like. God always pursues us, his unfaithful and adulterous children, over and over and over again. So as I said, there's an exception clause here that Jesus gives for divorce, but God's character is demonstrated even more when broken covenants are restored. You just look through the Old Testament story. How many times is the nation of Israel called an adulterous nation? And how many times does God seek and pursue and restore over and over again? And I think that's what God, Jesus wants us to see here in this passage. The reason God is so serious in his word about our marriage covenants is because he is serious about his covenant with us, his bride. It is at the top of his list. This, this is what matters to him more than anything. He's going to demonstrate faithfulness to us. And every one of us that knows him can put her hand up and go, yes, yeah, he's been faithful over and over again no matter how many times I run the other way. And so he takes marriage seriously because it points to something about him. Disciples don't know what to say. As they're thinking about getting married and they're thinking about they have a way out, um, that's this way they, that was just what they thought. They said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Um, so what are they saying? Do they really think that they would prefer to be single? And the answer to that is for these guys anyways, it, the answer is No. Because people were not single in this culture. It just didn't happen. Um, if, if somebody was single, it was because of something um, that they would prefer not to have. They were, they were cast out. There was something wrong. There was, there was sickness. Um, perhaps they had been divorced and never given a certificate, so they're just cast adrift without any recourse. Um, singleness, it wasn't just not desired, but it just simply wasn't practiced in this culture. So when a husband divorced his wife, he immediately remarried. He already had something in mind, probably, along the way. But Jesus is going to surprise them. I don't think that they're serious about this. They're wondering what to do about it. And Jesus is going to use their statement to actually do something rather surprising. And he takes their statement and he affirms and he raises up to the very highest possible place of God's favor, not only marriage, but singleness as well, is what he does here. So he talks about this thing about eunuchs, um, not a word that we normally use here in our culture. Um, in the first century, there was, there was two categories of eunuchs, and Jesus mentions both of them. One are, are eunuchs who are born that way from birth. So perhaps a man who's born with some sexual deformity, there, there's something in some way that he cannot marry, cannot re reproduce. And so there's, he says those are born from birth. And, then, and they're often outcast. They, they, they couldn't be in the temple. Um, and then you have eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. So it's men that were basically castrated, 
oftentimes out of penalty or for, for doing something wrong. Oftentimes uh, men that were serving um, in the palace courts among all the wives of the kings, they didn't want them doing anything they shouldn't do, so they were castrated. So the Ethiopian in Acts, he says that he's a, a eunuch. He has been um, made a eunuch by men, a, a form of abuse and pain and hurt and all the things that come with it in order to that. So Jesus addresses, there's two kinds. Everybody knew about those. And then Jesus introduces a third category that they would have never, ever, ever considered or thought of because it was completely countercultural at that time. And he turns the table and he says, in the kingdom of God, to embrace a life of singleness, to make oneself a eunuch, doesn't mean to do something physically damaging to yourself. That's not the idea. The idea is to choose a life of celibacy and singleness for all of your life or for a period of time. It says, to embrace a life of singleness or celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, he takes it and he says it's a beautiful reflection of the very character and nature of God and his kingdom as well. That actually that, in, in, in its own, marriage in its own unique way, displays God and his character. And then he says, in singleness, the choice to it, in its own unique way, also puts the kingdom on display. The disciples were alarmed that there was no way out of a marriage, but they would have never truly thought it was better not to marry. And Jesus takes this unheard of idea and he infuses it with grace and blessing and the glory of God. Totally unthought of in that culture. Nobody would have thought of it. John the Baptist was unmarried, but that was really unusual, which is everybody thought he was unusual. You know, it's like they sent him out in the desert. Jesus was Paul later on, um, and he actually talks about this more. So what's, what has happened here in this passage? Ultimately, for both men and women, Jesus has taken marriage, which was basically treated as, as a, no value at all in that culture because you could do whatever you wanted with it. And he's taken, he's raised it back up, says it's, this is what it's about. It's about showing forth the kingdom of God. It's about displaying what God is like. It's to give our world a picture of, of the God who loves us. But then he also takes singleness and he raises it up to exactly the same spot as these people are created in God's image equally. And their own unique weight and their opportunities that they would have are meant to display the kingdom of God too and to put his image on display for the world. So what are, as a church, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I know at the very least we have to take care of each other in our marriages, don't we? And all those, and we have a lot who are single here, we have to affirm and encourage and build up and, and, and see that God has created an opportunity there to let that go, to take care of both these places, to encourage and to nourish them. So what are some things to take away? Number one, uh, I'd say marriages matter. Marriages matter. It doesn't matter what our government enacts, what other people say, what God has said about it is always true. And our marriages matter. They're made to display the beauty of God in a unique way. And we have to help each other because it is hard, is it not? It is hard to, to be, to our, for our marriages to reflect God, and we need to help each other. Second of all, singleness is a unique opportunity. And it's designed to help cultivate the kingdom of God. And we have to encourage those who are single and they're flourishing in the kingdom. Third of all, divorce no matter the circumstances, no matter where the fault lies, is always contrary to God's original intention, and it, it leaves a wake of hurt and destruction in its path. 
even when God's come in and redeemed and brought new life out of that, there's still that pain that's still there. And we've got to take care of each other with grace and with kindness. Remember my oldest brother, his wife, after they were married two years, left, um, just left, moved out and left. And um, he was shocked and um, came to me and says, what am I supposed to do? And I remember thinking, I, I thought I had all the answers for this one, but I, I didn't know. Um, had no idea what to say to him. Um, but his church basically ostracized him immediately. And um, we need to take care of each other with grace and with kindness, with compassion, because God is a redemptive God. We need to participate in that. And lastly, under all of this, and perhaps the primary point Jesus wants to take, is that God keeps his covenant relationship with us forever. Never be broken. He made the covenant, interesting enough, um, he made a covenant with Adam and Eve, and they broke it. He made a covenant with the nation of Israel, and they broke it. So now he comes on, I'm going to make a new communion. Guess what I'll do this time? I'm going to make the covenant, I'll keep the covenant, and I'll do their side of it as well. I'll keep the covenant for them, which was his shed blood for us, as he kept our part of it, because he knew we would fail. So he did all sides of it. He kept both sides, and since he knew we would be unfaithful, he then, even with that, he, he gives us all the benefits as though we kept the covenant ourselves, and it's all ours. And the table reminds us that every single week. Psalm 111.9 says, He sent redemption to his people. He has guaranteed his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. It's good news for unfaithful people, isn't it? For people who um, experienced hurt and pain and separation. Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, and with us, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. And that can be a great day, declares the Lord. It says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We are beneficiaries of that today. And he goes on, Jeremiah 32, he says, I'll make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. That's us. And I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I love this. He says, I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness, and I will do it with all my heart and all my soul. Don't you love the passion of God? He says, I'm going to make them flourish, and I'm going to do it with all my heart and all of my soul. That's the commitment that he makes to us. And every week as, as, as a community, as we gather around this table together, remember that we have a God who's called us his bride. And he says, with all of my heart, he says to us, with all of my soul, I'm going to cause you to flourish. And even when you turn and you go off and you're an adulterous people and you, we go our own way, every single week we come back going, he's still there, he's still calling us over and over again. Nothing has changed. He's never cast us out. We have a place at that table week by week by week. Val, if you could bring uh, our worship team up. As I said, we gather around this as, as, as his body, his, his bride, um, Covenants in the Old Testament were ratified by blood, and Jesus, with his own body and with his own blood, makes a, an everlasting covenant with us, his people. It's, it's a promise that he's going to do good. So even when things are in disarray, and even when 
his original intentions don't happen in our life and there's brokenness and thing. God is always about restoring, and the table reminds us every time. It's about restoring sinful people, which is true for all of us. And that the, the table is a reminder that he's brought us near with the, his blood for us. And we can come around and we can say thank you. And we can celebrate it. Mark chapter 14 says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And I say to you, I'm not going to drink of it again until the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of God. So as we sing, I invite you to come, um, if you know the Lord, as his covenanted bride, and gather around the table together and remember him and to give thanks.